from Psalm 119. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways might be steadfast in keeping your statutes, that I, then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Uh, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your laws that you've written to us, things that you commanded, the statutes that you've given to us. Help us this morning to listen to your word, uh, to walk in your ways, and to love you with our whole heart. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Leviticus 1, chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a meal without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron the priest are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons the priests shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering is a burnt offering from the flock, from either the sheep or the goats, you are to offer a male without defect. You are to slaughter it at the north side of the altar before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall splash the blood against the sides of the altar. You are to cut it into pieces, and the priests shall arrange them, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to bring all of them and burn them on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, you are to offer a dove or a young pigeon. The priest shall bring it to the altar, bring off the head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar, he is to remove the crop and the feathers and throw them down east of the altar where the ashes are. He shall tear it open by the wings, not dividing it completely. And then the priest shall burn it on the wood that is burning on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I wonder what you're thinking right now. 
we've just read about the slaughter and burning of animals. And you might be thinking, what's that got to do with us today? What planet are you on, Dave? You're thinking, this book's going to be good for us to look at as a church. And if you manage to read through the seven chapters of the book I suggested, uh, good on you. You would have seen seven chapters of offerings and sacrifices the Israelites needed to make. You might be thinking, come on, Dave. There's a reason why churches don't preach through this book. It's, it's boring. It's full of rules that don't apply to us. And if you're honest, you might even say, I've never even read the whole thing. Or just that one time, never again. Or in fact, Leviticus was your stumbling block. You know, that time you tried to read the Bible from cover to cover, but as you came to Leviticus, you're like, What's this? I'm, I'm going to move on to something that's more relevant to me. And so you stop that and, and start and go back to the New Testament. And look, I get it. It's a book that is so far off from us today. It's a different world set in a different time, a completely different culture. In fact, we might read this and think it's a different religion. And look, I get it. So much blood, animals slaughtered, and there's the rules, commands. It's full of it. And a lot of it just don't seem relevant to us today, like the need to make an offering when you've sinned. You see, we read Leviticus, and it does, it seems, so far off from us today. And yet, it is relevant for us today. Have a look here at 2 Timothy chapter 3. All scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And at the point of writing, Paul's got the Old Testament in mind. He says, all of Scripture is for our good. It is useful and it equips us. And that includes Leviticus. Paul doesn't say all Scripture except Leviticus is useful. No, no, no. All Scripture. And so Leviticus does relate to us today. And it's relevant for us uh, because it helps us understand the New Testament. It, it shows us all that Jesus has achieved and fulfilled, but there will be parts of the New Testament that we really won't be able to fully understand and grasp unless we understand Levit uh, Leviticus uh, and, and the Old Testament. You see, Leviticus shows us how a holy God can allow a, a sinful, broken people to be in his presence. And God graciously provides a way for his people to be in his holy presence. But you see, before we get into that, we really need to understand where Leviticus fits. Uh, we read Leviticus last year, uh, and that book is just before Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And, and in the book of Exodus, we saw God's gracious merciful, all-encompassing power in saving the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And with mighty and wondrous acts, the ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea, God rescued his people. And God brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai and he enters into a relationship, a covenant with his people. And he says this to them. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. And how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of 
all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the order here is really important. God saves them first, and then he gives them the law. You see, it is grace before law. It is salvation before works. We may think that's true of the New Testament, but exactly true here as well in the Old Testament. It is grace before law, salvation before works. And so, uh, in being in a relationship and a covenant with God, how are his people to relate to him? Well, well, God gives them the Ten Commandments and, and the laws that follow. And God will dwell in them in the tabernacle, the tent in which will be in their midst, in which they will build. But you see, there's a big issue. And the issue we saw is, is in the golden calf incident. They are a sinful people. How can a holy God be present among a sinful, rebellious, marred people? You see, we not re- may not really grasp this because we may not understand the significance of God's holiness. You see, God's holiness is what sets him apart from absolutely everything else. That he is good, pure, that he is just, that he is almightily powerful. You see, God's holiness is what sets him apart as distinct, as different from everything else. And what's holy can't be present with what is unholy. If we think of God's holiness like the sun, it might help us. You see, the sun is so powerful. It is unique. It is the source of life here on earth. And so we can't get too close to the sun. Otherwise, we will get burnt up. You see, we know this too well in Australia, where our ozone is is thinner than other parts of the world. Uh, If we don't protect ourselves, we get burned very easily. The sun is dangerous. We can't get too close. We must approach it in the right manner. That is just like God's holiness. It is dangerous if we get too close. We can only approach him in the right manner. Because if an unholy defiled or sinful thing comes in contact with something that's holy, well, watch out. They are burned up, as we'll see next week in Leviticus chapter 10. You see, God's holiness is dangerous and needs to be approached correctly. We can't approach God however we want to, but we must approach God in the way that he wants us to relate to him, how he wants his people to relate to him. And you see, that is where the book of Leviticus comes in. God shows his people how to relate to their holy God. You see, we see the issue there in the opening verse. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Notice that God's speaking from within the tent. But Moses, he's out. He can't be in the presence of God's presence just yet. Because Moses and the people sin. Well, that needs to be dealt with. And if we look at the the very first verse of of the next book of the Bible, Numbers, we can actually see that the the issue is being dealt with as Moses is in the tent, present with God. But see, there is a problem at this particular point. But God graciously provides, in the book of Leviticus, offerings and sacrifices and a priesthood to deal with their sin. And we'll look at those in turn this weekend and next week. God's holiness is a key to this book. 
And this is something that they needed to learn, just, just like us actually, is that God is not at our beck and call as if God needs to obey us. Actually, God's holiness demands holiness from his people. And, and a key, key verse uh, for us in this book is, is from chapter 19, verse 2. Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. You see, they were to be holy like God was holy. And God shows them how. And while Leviticus might seem like a bunch of rules, uh, the thing about laws and, and rules is that they reflect the values of the person who gives them. And so Leviticus shows us actually what God is like. It shows us what his character is. It shows us what he values and what is important to him. And the final thing uh, uh, to, to understand before we get into the text proper is to understand that this book, uh, we, to understand this book, we must understand their context first. What did these laws mean for them at that particular time and place? You see, we must understand that first before bringing it to us. We can't just apply Leviticus straight to us because uh, we actually, we've already recognised that it is so far and remote from us today. And so we can't just apply that straight into our lives. And so we must understand it in their proper context first before we can bring it into our own lives. God's people are in a relationship with God. But their sin, well, it's a barrier to being in his holy presence. But God graciously provides a way for his people to deal with their sin and to be in his presence. And it's the sacrificial system. Uh, we're going to look at each offering in, in turn. But what we'll kind of see is that each offering is different. What they offered, how it was done, who could eat it or not eat it, and, and, and who was able to eat it. The purpose of, of each offering. Look, we won't be able to go into each detail, but, but I hope that you'll be able to appreciate them better as, uh, uh, as a result. Well, the first one is the burnt offering. Uh, the burnt offering was offered for general sinfulness. You see, when people sin, they rebel against God. Sin was a personal affront to God, and he is angry. He is wrathful at sin. And so, and so their sin, well, it needed to be appeased and atoned for. Have a look here at verse uh, 2. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. You see, God's people, they were an agrarian society. They farmed the land and the animals, and their produce and their animals, well, that was their economic currency. And so just like today with, with varying economic situations, that was the same for them. And so a, a herd animal, a cow, a bull, that was the, the greatest economic value. But you see, God graciously provided a concession for those who couldn't afford a, a cow or, or a lamb or something else. God allowed them to find a bird, that they may be able to offer that to the Lord. You see, God doesn't want someone's economic situation to hold them back from approaching God. Well, let's continue, uh, continue reading from verse 3. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. 
you must present it as at the entrance to the tent of meeting, so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. And verse 4, as we continue reading, is uh, the one who's making the offering, they would place their hands on the animal that they were about to offer. And that symbolized their hands on that. It was kind of a symbolization of their confession of sin. It said, I am sinful. I am guilty. And it kind of showed that this animal would be a substitute for them, that the animal would make atonement for the one who was making the offering. You see, a person's sin put them in a, in a broken relationship with God because a, a holy God, a perfect, righteous and fair God, he is angry at sin and he can't leave sin unpunished. But you see, he graciously provides a way for atonement to be made where his anger and wrath would be turned away from the person towards the animal instead. And what this shows us is that sin equals death. But the animal dies in place of the person. Well, the one making the offering would slaughter the young bull and blood was splashed all over the place and the animal was, was cut up and the majority of it was put onto the altar and burnt up. It was all burnt. None of it was eaten. It was completely burnt up. Do you know, I, I have this friend who reckons a meal isn't a meal unless it has meat in it. So you'd never eat a salad sandwich. It would have to have ham in it. Now, in this day and age, we actually eat a lot of meat, don't we? Uh, but for them back then, meat was a luxury. It wasn't something they had every day, let alone every meal. And so as they see the entire cow being offered and being burnt up, well, it, is a, it reminds them of how great their sin was that only the, the full animal would pay the price for God's wrath and anger at their sin. But you see, their burnt offering, verse 9, was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It's pleasing, acceptable to God. You see, God's attitude to the person will let altered, thanks to this burnt offering. But you see, the burnt offering didn't change the person internally. They were still sinful. But the offering dealt with God's anger at their sin and made fellowship with their holy God possible. You see, this burnt offering, it was the most common offering that there was. It was done twice daily uh, by the priests uh, and then as well when other people brought in their offerings. And it was the most costly because no one else ate it. It was completely consumed as it was burnt in fire. But you see, it was a great regular reminder for them of their sinfulness, a great reminder of the seriousness of their sin and its consequences. You see, something needed to die. But it was a great reminder of God's mercy and, and grace and justice in, in providing this offering. Well, that is the, the burnt offering. And next is the grain offering. The grain offering was usually done at the same time as the burnt offering. Uh, this offering was a gift of thanksgiving to, to the Lord for forgiving them through the burnt offering and recognizing the, the favor they have received from God. You see, the grain offering saw people offer grain, that is, uh, what makes flour. And then together with oil and incense and salt, they would bring that to the priest. But you see, the flour was to be their finest, 
flower. It was to be the, the best of their best. Well, when the priest had this offering, uh, he would uh, offer a small amount. He would burn a, a little part of it on, on the altar, and, and that would be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering, well, that was given to Moses and his sons to eat. That is, the priests who would serve the Lord and the people in this sacrificial system. You see, through this offering, the priesthood were provided for. Uh, and the same with the, with the other uh, sacrifices. They would keep parts of the meat, except for that burnt offering. But all the others, they would actually get a portion of. You see, they didn't have farms and animals like the others did. Their whole lives were given in service to the Lord. And well, we don't need to make offerings today like this. We don't need to give animals and grain to the work of the Lord to see that continue. You see, times have changed. But we are told to be generous to the work of the Lord and to those whose work it is to, to proclaim the gospel. We can do that, of course, by giving to the work of, of church, uh, but, but also to our gospel partners like, like Dan Kong and, and Simon Yam and, and the great work that they're doing at Deacon. Well, for the Israelites, their offerings meant that the priests were fed and looked after. And we are told to do the same, to look after those in whom lead us. Well, there's one more thing mentioned here uh, uh, in this section, and that is salt. Have a look there at verse 13. Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. You see, God had entered into a covenant with his people, as we saw earlier, that they would be his people and, and he would be their God. And salt, for whatever reason, I'm not sure why, was used when people made covenants. As two parties came together and made a covenant, they would use some salt. And the salt communicated that their covenant was ongoing, a sign of their, their permanence, a sign that the covenant would be permanent. And so by adding salt to, to all their offerings, it was a reminder of their covenant with the Lord, that they would stick to the covenant, that they would hold up to their end of the bargain and continue in relationship with him. Well, that's the grain offering. And next is the fellowship offering or the peace offering, depending on your translation. Now, this offering was, was quite different and unique from the other ones before, because uh, this one was optional. Unlike the burnt and grain offering, which was done twice daily by the priest, this was optional. Uh, and, it was, uh, and it was the only one in which the person who was making the offering, it was the only one that they could eat some of it. You see, as the animal was, was offered, the best meat in the, uh, of the animal, that, well, that went to the Lord. That was burnt and made a, uh, given as a pleasing aroma uh, to the Lord. A portion was given to the priests as well. Uh, but the rest was actually given to the one who offered it. And I really like this aspect about it. The, the really cool thing is that, that what was left, it needed to be eaten around the, in the temple kind of, uh, in the temple, sorry, in the tabernacle kind of, kind of area or close by. And it was shared. It, it, it became like a festive meal and was shared with all those people who were, who were close by. It was really cool, hey? And, and, well, three reasons. We get three reasons for, for why one would, would offer a fellowship offering. 
it, it was generally in thanks and praise for something that the Lord had done. The fellowship offering. Now, next is the sin offering or purification offering. Here, atonement's made for the unintentional but specific sin, a name sin. And this uh, offering really brought purification. You see, a person's sin, depending on how great or small they were as a, as a leader or not, uh, they would pollute the land, whether greatly or smallly. And, and to deal with that pollution caused by the sin, well, a sin offering was made. But unlike a burnt offering, this offering was less important and, and, and happened less frequently. If we compare it to the animals for, for each of the offering, the best of the best animals were offered for the burnt offering. But for a sin offering, well, less valuable animals uh, were needed. But as atonement was made, well, forgiveness was found and the blood of the animal became like a detergent. Uh, that, that washed away the stain of sin, which prevented one being in God's presence. You see, as we read through this, this section, it's really interesting. You'll, you'll notice this repetition of this phrase. It comes up again and again. Unintentional sin, if the person unintentionally sins. And it makes the point that even if you sin unintentionally, you are still guilty. I reckon sometimes we think that we're innocent until proven otherwise. But that is not what we see here. You see, many, many years ago, Emily and I, uh, we were holidaying overseas and, and we, uh, we, we hired a car. And while looking for a car park, we drove around and around this kind of loop until we, we actually finally found a car park, which, we, which was great, and we did whatever we planned to do there. But six months later, back at home, I started receiving these letters in, in foreign languages. Uh, and then the car, car hire company said that actually we owe 200 euros. You see, totally unawares, I kept on driving into a section I wasn't meant to drive into, except I did it three times and got three fines. I didn't know there was a problem. I didn't know I'd done anything wrong, but, but I was guilty despite being unawares and was punished for my wrongdoing. And it's the same as sin. Some people may think that we are all good with God, thinking that ignorance is bliss, but they are guilty. Even unintentional sin makes one guilty. And a time comes when God will judge each one of us for our rebellion and rejection of him. And you see, for the Israelites at that time, when they realized their sin that they had unintentionally done, well, they were to... Uh, make a sin offering to seek God's forgiveness. Well, the final offering is the guilt offering. When someone or uh, was betrayed or disrespected, or when someone uh, betrayed their covenant loyalty towards God, well, a debt was owed. And the guilt offering paid the debt for the atonement for them. You see, when a person disrespected someone's property, they were disrespecting that person. And so if someone disrespected God's property, like the holy things, or by deceiving your, their, their neighbours, as these are the examples that are given in this section, uh, they have wronged God. They have wronged that person and a debt was owed. And the guilt offering acknowledged their wrongdoing. And, and they paid a penalty in the form of a guilt offering. 
and, and atonement's made and, and forgiveness uh, while it's received. You see, the sacrificial system, all these different uh, uh, offerings that, that were made, they, they were all different ways uh, of dealing with sin. Each used a slightly different model to, to express it. So, for instance, the burnt offering used a personal picture. You know, a person was a guilty sinner and deserved to die for their sin, but that the animal died in their place and that God accepted the animal on their behalf. While the sin offering was kind of like a medical picture. You see, sin made the world dirty. And so God can't dwell there. He can't be there with, with his people. But the animal, but the blood of the animal, well, that disinfects. It cleans the tabernacle so that God can continue to be in their presence. And finally, the guilt offering uses a kind of commercial picture of sin. Sin is a debt which incurs uh, a debt against God. And you see the debt is paid through the animal that is offered. You see, as we stand back and look at these offerings and we see the regular practice of, of God's people of that time, we can see the absolute incredible cost that was associated with their sin. So much death and blood was needed each time they, they sinned because of their sin. You see, they had great and regular reminders of their sinfulness and what a great cost it was to deal with it. But how does this apply, apply, apply to us? You see, this is where the book of Hebrews is great. And I reckon I'll be going, <laughs> looking at the book of Hebrews a lot uh, during uh, this series. Have a look here from chapter 10. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his re religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when, the, but when this priest, that is Jesus, when he had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You see, God gave them the sacrificial system to deal with their sin, but it was ongoing. Day after day, they'd make offerings again and again and again. But you see, in Jesus, in his life-giving death on the cross, he gave his life as the ultimate offering once for all, making those who trust him, well, he makes them holy like him. And because they have been made holy, well, they are able to be in his presence. You see, Leviticus is a great reminder that we are sinful. But you see, unlike the people back then, a sacrifice has been made. Christ has given his life once and for all that for those who trust in him, well, they too will have life and are holy, that they too are set apart and different from those around them. You see, Leviticus shows us how a holy God can dwell among his people. And his holiness was acknowledged by them through the costly sacrifices they needed to give in the offerings. You see, for them, it was the regular costly offerings. 
You see, in Christ, he gave himself in the huge cost of, of his life, dying once for all to save a people for himself. And for us, well, it's giving God our lives, holding nothing back in service of him. Well, let's pray, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we uh, give you great thanks for your graciousness. You are a gracious God who not only uh, saved uh, your people out of slavery in Egypt, but you provided a way, the sacrificial system, in which could see their sin be dealt with, that they could be in your presence. It was a, a costly reminder of the of their sin and a regular reminder of their sin. Father, we thank you that you have paid the price through the Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus, that through his death once and for all, we too find forgiveness and and atonement and salvation, that through his great work, uh, we have been declared holy. We are holy in your sight. We are set apart. We are, we are different. For that, we give you we give you great thanks, Father. The life of the Israelites was was costly, as as it is for us as we seek to forego our own desires and wants and to live for you and your desires and wants, that we may be holy like you are holy. So, Father, we do pray that you would help us, help us live in accordance to your word. That we may please you in every way. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.